You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, after four years of talks in Cuba, the government of Colombia and the left-wing FARC guerrilla movement have reached an agreement that will put an end to a 52-year bloody war in which over 200,000 have died. I speak to former Labour leader and Thornister, Eamon Gilmore, who has for the last two years been the EU special representative to that country, about its peace process and the many resonances it has with our own. And Ruri Giblin reports from Kurdish Iraq as the Kurds and the Iraqi government prepare a joint assault on Mosul, Iraq's second city and Islamic State's last major stronghold there. The announcement by Colombia's FARC guerrillas on Sunday of a permanent ceasefire, there was a bilateral ceasefire in force since June, marks an important turning point for a country that has been consumed in war and drug-related violence for half a century. But the government and the FARC guerrilla group are not out of the woods yet. The controversial deal that they've done together uh, has to go to referendum. It won't be easy. Many Colombians despise the FARC because of its involvement in mortar bombings, drug trafficking and kidnapping. Eamon Gilmore has followed the final stages of negotiations closely as EU special representative. Eamon, in some way, as I say, the difficulties start now, reintegrating 7,000 FARC guerrillas into Colombian society is a huge problem. And are, are you convinced that FARC is genuinely committed to this, this process? Yes, I am. Uh, since I was appointed by Federica Mogherini as the EU special envoy uh, for the peace process in Colombia last November, um, I've uh, been in Cuba, I think on five occasions now, um, meeting with the negotiators from both the government side and from the FARC side and meeting indeed with the uh, guarantors from the Cuban government and the Norwegian government who have been working with those talks for for about four years. And I remember um, sitting in the hall uh, in Havana uh, last June when the bilateral ceasefire was announced and the leader of the FARC uh, delegation, Timoshenko, uh, stood up and said, you know, this is the last day of the war. And it was a very powerful, very powerful statement. The agreement that has been concluded provides for uh, the laying down of arms by by FARC. There's a timetable for that. Uh, It would be done over a six month period. Um, It would be overseen by the United Nations. There would be a a United Nations monitoring mission, uh, which would be an unarmed mission, mainly drawn from the other Latin American countries. Um, That mission is established on foot of a UN Security Council resolution and they will oversee the laying down of arms, the destruction of the weapons uh, and the process of reintegration of FARC uh, into society and into political life. Now, there are very controversial elements in, in the package and, and uh, interesting res- resonances of our own peace process, not, not least the decommissioning, which you've, you've just mentioned, but also in, in the pro- proposals for what, are, what is being called transitional justice. Uh, and these are, represent uh, amnesties or partial amnesties, setting up of truth commissions to uh, consider people's uh, guilt and what will happen to them people being required to do community service rather than go to jail. Is this a, a, a package that will work with the guerrillas? They have to come forward and confess uh, to what they've done uh, in detail. Yes, there are two. I, I suppose there are two tracks to this. Um, first of all, uh, there is an arrangement whereby um, 
those who have committed crimes would come forward and admit to what they have done. Um, they will then go into what's called a transitional justice arrangement uh, where their offence will be judged, there will be a process, um, and they can be convicted to a loss of liberty for a period of time. That loss of liberty would not be in a, a standard prison. It would be in a community setting. It would be in uh, a local area that be confined to uh, a particular area required to uh, carry out um, a form of, of community service. Now, that is for those who actually uh, confess up and said, you know, look, I, 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 I did this. Mm -hmm. If somebody doesn't do that, and there's a time limit within which they're, they're required to do it, if somebody doesn't do that, then they, are, they continue to be subject to the normal um, law. Uh, they can be prosecuted at any stage, and if convicted, uh, they get the full, uh, the full whack or the full sentence. So this, this, if you like, transitional arrangement, it really applies to those who confess uh, to what they have done, who admit uh, to what they have done. I should say, of course, that you have to look at that transitional justice arrangement in the context of um, the involvement of victims in the process. Um, one of the things about the Colombian talks was that the, the victims and representatives of victims were invited to Havana to participate in, in the talks and to talk about what their needs were in terms of uh, finding out the truth about p people who ha had been killed, um, uh, also uh, arrangements which were put in place for restitution or reparation being made uh, to, to victims. And they've already, in fact, there's already uh, an agency which is already established. I've met with them on a number of occasions uh, whose job will be to look at uh, the victims, what their needs are, and to, to make reparation. In some cases, the, the reparation arrangements will be in the form of collective reparation. It won't be necessarily individual. It might be, for example, if a particular village or a particular community uh, was impacted, uh, that there will be a collective uh, restitution uh, made to them. And that uh, restitution not done by the guerrilla movement, but by the funds that have probably come from the international community, uh, no, the funding for that will be done through the, the Colombian government, through the, right. the Colombian state. Uh, the funds from the international community will be used in supporting the implementation of, of, of the peace process. In the case of the European Union, uh, what we envisage doing is, is using uh, European Union funds to support the rural development side of the, of the package. And indeed also to support one of the things that we're doing at the moment is we are uh, funding... Uh, the pilot projects for the demining. Uh, Colombia is the second most has second most landmines in the, in the world. I think second only to Afghanistan. And th there ha has been a pilot pro number of pilot projects which have been going on for some time, involving the Colombian army and FARC on the ground. And I've been out there with them um, on the ground, where they're looking at. Uh, where these mines were placed. I mean, in some cases, maybe 40 years ago, some of them very crude, some of them made in, in tin cans. They're in different parts of, 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 of the land. So the, the object is to identify, first of all, where they are and to, to build on the knowledge, the local knowledge, in some cases of the people who actually planted them, mm. uh, to, to see where they are and then to have a, a plan to, to take them out of the ground. So the European Union has been funding uh, the pilot projects for that and uh, they've been quite successful and the idea now is that that will be enlarged. It's a it's a very big job. There's a very big part of the country uh, which has been subjected to, uh, to land mining. 
And do, do you expect, for example, Irish uh, soldiers to go out and help in that, that process? Well, the, the, the involvement of soldiers at the moment will be in the UN monitoring mission. Right. Um, and uh, the bulk of the UN monitoring mission will come from the Latin American countries. Um, some European Union states are providing um, some monitors for that, some soldiers and indeed some civilians. But of course, they have to be Spanish speaking. So there may well, uh, if, if there are um, Irish, uh, if, if there's interest in uh, in the Irish Defence Forces in, in participating, I'm sure that that would be, be very welcome. In any event, um, our ambassador in Mexico who covers, um, Ambassador Highland, who covers um, Colombia, uh, is is aware of the requirement. Now, one of the controversial proposals um, uh, involves uh, the reintegration of some 7,000 fighters into, into the labour force, and, and that is going to involve payments of um, minimum wage type uh, uh, grants to the the, uh, the former guerrillas, uh, something that, that many of the victims' families are are deeply resentful of. Um, is that is that um, uh, acknowledged that it is that that will go through? Well, first of all, the the deal has to be approved in in a referendum or a, or a plebiscite, and the plan is that that will take place on the second of October. Uh, there's no doubt that there's going to be uh, an intense political debate uh, in Colombia about the agreement. There is broad support in the parliament. Um, president Santos has, has broad support for the agreement in, across the, the parliament. The former president, uh, uh, former president Uribe, um, has come out in, in opposition to it and his party will, will oppose it. Um, it's like any referendum and we have a lot of experience of those, uh, of those here. Uh, I don't think the outcome can be taken for granted. I think the case has to be has to be argued. It has to be uh, debated. Um, information uh, provided to people, but that process is now underway, and I have no doubt that uh, by the time the second of October comes around and and people are are voting on it, people will be aware of what's what's in it. And I think what I think what people will have to look at is. You know, it's it's possible to identify any one part of of the agreement and subject it to very critical scrutiny. Uh, but I think what ha- people have to do is look at it in its totality. Look at the package. What this is about is bringing to an end this conflict that has gone on for fifty two years, has killed two hundred and twenty thousand people, uh, resulted in the displacement of about six million people from their from their homes, uh, and we're talking about a process which will involve. Uh, as I said, in a relatively short period of time, the laying down of those weapons, we've now the permanent ceasefire announced by, by FARC, and the destruction of the weapons. So um, it, it is bringing that conflict uh, to an end. As we saw in our own peace process here in Northern Ireland, there are compromises that have to be made in order to, to bring that about. Some of those compromises are very uncomfortable. We saw that here. We saw, for example, I, I recall that the arrangement whereby people were released after two, serving just two years. Mm. Some people found that very difficult to understand and very difficult to take. And it's interesting, I I find when I'm I'm in Colombia and when I'm talking with people about the process there, I think it's interesting to, to be able to talk with them about our experience of that. And, you know, just, and also to talk, I think, very frankly, about how uncomfortable many people felt with those arrangements. Uh, but that you look at what was achieved at the end, that, you know, you, you bring the violence to, to an end mm. and that that is a very big prize. And some of the uh, 
proposals that are controversial and are going to be very difficult, like the payments to to ex-paramilitaries, are proposals that uh, Uribe himself as president implemented with the disarming of the right-wing militias in, in his term of office. That's right. That there were arrangements which were put in place by President Uribe for the disarming of the, the paramilitaries and also for the reintegration. There was a, re- a, 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 a reintegration yeah. process which was yeah. um, uh, which was put in place. I, I, I think it needs to be looked at. It's not just a case of, of payments. There, it's also envisaged that there will be uh, a program that, that the reintegration program will be at, at at two levels really. One is the question of political. Uh, reintegration because what is envisaged is that FARC will have a conference in in mid-September to take a decision to approve the peace uh, agreement but also to transform their organisation into a a political organisation. So there's a political reintegration first of all but then there is also the reintegration. And and they will have have reserved seats in the parliament. On a a temporary basis. Mm -hmm. uh, Again and, and this is not unfamiliar territory for us if you recall at one stage in the Northern Ireland peace process there was this formula devised whereby the 10 largest parties. Um, it's difficult to count 10 parties in Northern Ireland, but the, the idea of 10 large parties was developed as the 10 largest parties to make sure that all of the paramilitary organisations would have political representation at that stage of the of, of the process. Um, the other part of the integration, of course, is the integration uh, you know the integration into into civilian life, into work. So you know we've been looking at areas of training, education, uh, and indeed also talking with the private sector about um, how uh, people can be integrated into into areas of employment. Also, and significant agricultural reform, which is significant. Where, yeah. Yes, one of the one of the, uh, the I mean the origins of this conflict was of course uh, very much agrarian and about agrarian reform and land reform and. Uh, so a very large part of this agreement is about rural development and about land reform. One of, a very big issue uh, is uh, about title to land. Uh, it's estimated that about 70% of the agricultural land in Colombia does not have clear title. Now, there is an agency that has been established which is about looking at the, you know, who actually owns the land and about people who are reclaiming uh, land that they were, you know, you know, what they were forced off, and in some cases, intimidated off. Uh, I've met with that agency. I've also met with um, farmers and, and people who have been, who were forced off their land, and who are now making claims to, to to get land back. And that's going to take quite some time. It's going to be quite complex. Then, of course, there is the issue of the crops, because one of the elements in Colombia, of course, is the uh, is cocaine and the coca crop and the. Um, uh, the, the growing of illegal crops. So there will have to be a programme of, of crop substitution again uh, over, over a period of time. So the implementation of this is, the, 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 in, in a way, the part of the implementation of this that is going to be most immediate is going to be the laying down of arms and the destruction of the, of the weapons. The part of the implementation that will take uh, somewhat longer will be reintegration, the land reform, the rural development issues. And that's where the European Union is committing uh, its finances and Federica Mogherini announced when she was in um, Colombia last May uh, a package of 575 million euros uh, to support the implementation of the process. And part of your job on an ongoing basis will be to see that money spent? In, in a way, the, the primary part of my job is, is, to, is to work on the implementation. So I'm working with 
the European Union delegation, European Union embassy, really, in in, um, in Bogota and with Ambassador Zacharias, who's the European Union ambassador to, to Colombia, and with the uh, European External Action Service in Brussels and the Development Cooperation side of the European Union, the Commission, in um, bringing that package together making maximum uh, effect of it. We've been talking with, there's a ministry, which a dedicated ministry, which has been established by the Colombian government, a ministry of post-conflict. Um, and I've been talking with Minister Pardo, who is heading up that, that ministry and with, with his team. We've also been talking with uh, governors of the uh, different provinces, um, different areas, local government, about the practical impl- implementation of, um, of of the whole the whole package. So, in a way, the, the the work of supporting that and financing the support of the um, implementation is really just beginning now. Now, FARC is not the only uh, guerrilla movement there, and is it, it it is is it clear that they have enough clout, if you like, to bring about a proper ceasefire, or is it likely that that, that some form of war will continue? Well, they they are confident uh, that and and the agreement, and I know that they have they've had a process of discussion with their uh, people on the ground over over a period of time. So this this process has been going on for for some time, and they're certainly certainly confident that they will bring their their people with them. There is a second uh, guerrilla movement, the ELN, and the indications are that there that there will be negotiations between the government and and the ELN. There have been signals in that. Uh, in, in that direction for some time, those negotiations haven't actually haven't actually started. But I do hope that the ELN will follow the example that uh, that FARC have set, will conclude a uh, similar type agreement with the the government, and bring that uh, dimension of the conflict in Colombia to an end. Also, now they're working towards this referendum in in October, uh, which will uh, make a decision. Uh, in our uh, case, the referendum and the Belfast Agreement, uh, the no, sorry, the Anglo-Irish Agreement, uh, saw sixty percent relatively easy uh, to get a majority. It's not the case uh, in Colombia. Are you confident that the referendum will be passed? Well, I, I, I hope it will, um, because I think it's important, uh, first of all, that the, the people approve the agreement. Um, uh, and secondly, I think, as we saw here, I think it's also important in the long term that there is popular approval for the for the peace deal, because one of the things that happened here after the agreement was signed, you know, there are bumps in the road. Problems arise afterwards. And I think it's it's important to be able to point to the fact, and the strength of our agreement was to be able to point to the fact that this has now been approved by the people. The people of the country have spoken. So I hope it will be possible uh, in Colombia for the same type of popular uh, public endorsement of the of the agreement to to to, to ground it in it. Um, but um, I I also have a lot of experience of referenda and. Uh, you know, referenda can you know, uh, you know, t- issues like popularity of the government, other issues which may be in the public domain at the time, they all c- uh, come into play. So um, I, I think in that respect, it'll probably be like uh, like other 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 referenda. There will be a lot of a lot of issues that will will come into play uh, on it. And I think also probably um, the extent to which people in the country have been impacted by the conflict and there are large parts of the you know parts of the country and people who really haven't been personally impacted um, by it thank you Ian. 
Thanks for listening to the program. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Kurdish forces in Iraq and Syria are critical to the fight against Islamic State. They're among the most effective troops on the ground. They're fighting not only IS, but the Syrian government and its Russian allies. And now in Syria, they're being confronted by the Turks, who are determined to prevent the establishment of another mini Kurdish state in the country and the effect that that will have in reinforcing their own Kurds in the PKK. America is facing both ways, supporting the Kurds with arms and training and echoing Turkish calls that they should pull back. In Iraq, the Kurds are preparing a major offensive against Mosul with an Iraqi government with whom they have an uneasy relationship. Ruri Giblin has been travelling in Iraq's Kurdish autonomous area and talking to his leaders about the challenges that they face. What's it like in Erbil these days? Do you get a sense of the war there? And what's the state of the country economically? Well, Erbil is the capital city of the Kurdistan region of northern Iraq. It has all the hallmarks of a, of a Western modern city with all the, the uh, services you would expect. But it is a city gripped by war. The, uh, the, the food has been affected. Agriculture has been affected. There are regular blackouts here, but... Uh, only temporarily, and in it, two years before the uh, the uh, onset of the Islamic State assault, Erbil was being talked about as the new Dubai, and you can see signs of uh, multi-billion-dollar developments that were started and uh, promptly abandoned, high-rise buildings, shopping centres that were unfinished, and actually uh, some of the the high-rise buildings and skyscrapers, which are which are basically just like shells at the moment. They're used to house refugees, so uh, you can see that there. Now, you, you also visited the Peshmerga in the mountains, I gather. The Peshmerga are the, are the Kurdish troops. That's right, yeah. Erbil is in what's known as the Nineveh Plains, so it's like a, a large flatland, which will be a, sort of a, a floodplain of the uh, Tigris River, uh, which historically, of course... Uh, the, the, where the two rivers mess gave rise to the cradle of civilization. But north, you have the mountains, the, 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 the scenic mountains of the north, and that's real, the heart of Kurdistan, and where traditional Kurdistan still exists. Uh, south in Erbil, it's, it's much more of a western-leaning country. The, the youth of the city would uh, look like they're ready to go to a nightclub at any, any moment. Uh, there are uh, western-style shisha cafes. Alcohol is served openly on the streets. There are nightclubs. There are bars, very much a modern-leaning city, which reflects the Kurdish government's ambition to build ties with the world and ambition to stand on their own two feet and uh, to look west. Uh, and how did you find the Peshmerga? The Peshmerga, they're very proud of their Peshmerga, there's no doubt about that. Uh, you have to understand that uh, the, when I, yes, uh, Islamic State were uh, sweeping through the country and uh, it appeared as though they were unstoppable at the time, they, they came to the outskirts of Erbil, this city, and they were 30 kilometers away and uh, pounding the Peshmerga with uh, artillery. And this is what actually prompted uh, President Barack Obama, this along with the Yazidi, Yazidi issue uh, in, in the West, to uh, this is what prompted Barack Obama to re-enter Iraq, that uh, momentous uh, moment in uh, 2014. So the, the Kurds themselves, the people here, they, they, they thank the Peshmerga for that. Uh, they're very proud of their Peshmerga. Uh, the Peshmerga have done a, 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 a fine job keeping IS out. I mean, there hasn't been a, a terrorist attack in the city or in the in the region, apart from Kirkuk, uh, since the start of the war. So there are checkpoints, regular checkpoints. There are um, Peshmerga flags on most buildings. Uh, 
Um, everybody talks highly of the Peshmerga. Nearly everybody knows somebody in the Peshmerga. Um, and uh, they, are, they are definitely the, uh, the, the, the heroes, if I can put it like that, of the people here. Now, the Peshmerga and the Iraqi government forces have uh, surrounded uh, Mosul, which is the, the, basically the last major holdout of the IS in Iraq. And there is some confidence that the battle that is looming will actually take the city back. But this this is uh, problematic, isn't it? Because the relationship with the Iraqi government in Baghdad uh, between them and the Kurds is is pretty difficult. Yes, uh, Mosul is is the uh, political and spiritual capital of of, of Islamic State. Uh, it was in Mosul that they declared their caliphate, or so-called caliphate, in, in 2014, and uh, their defeat in the city will effectively end Islamic State in Iraq forcing them underground. And so the, the, the offensive is, uh, is, a, is a big deal. It's, um, a date has been given. Uh, I can't reveal it, but it's soon. Um, uh, so soon, in fact, that um, most, if not all, of Mosul is expected to be cleared by the time Barack Obama leaves office in January 2017. It's, it's, it's almost inevitable that Mosul will be cleared. There's a, there's a coalition of 67 countries involved. Um, so uh, the, the weight is definitely against IS at the moment. But if you can think of Mosul as, as the, the centre of your watch, the squeeze is on from, say, 9 o'clock to 6 o'clock. The Kurdish front line is 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock. And the Iraqi uh, state security forces, along with others, are pushing up from 6 o'clock north. So the Kurdish front line is uh, certainly uh, going to play a key role Um but it was confirmed yesterday that uh, the Kurds won't actually enter the city of Mosul itself. Not only is Mosul Iraq's second largest city, it's also its most ethnically complex. And the history surrounding Mosul um, is very, very difficult to it. To, 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 you have to remember that um, the residents of, of Mosul largely welcomed IS into the city in 2014 for various different reasons, many different reasons. And Iraqi security effectively abandoned the city, uh, uh, so um, and there was a there was a sort of a, sort of a welcome for for IS for various different reasons. So the um, there are talks ongoing at the moment, actually, as we speak in Baghdad between the Prime Minister of the Kurdistan Regional Government, um, Ansar Barzani, and the Prime Minister of Iraq, uh, Haider Al Abadi, about what happens after IS are cleared from the city. Um, that, because that is a priority for the Kurds. Although they will advance through tens of kilometres worth of territory on that sort of uh, arc that I've, that I've explained, uh, they won't enter the city. But their priority is what happens next. Will the future government of um, Mosul be amenable to the Kurds' ambitions to be independent? Or will it be, for example, what they fear the most is a former Ba'athist uh, or former uh, sort of uh, school of thought, Saddam Hussein, taking power in Mosul. This is what they fear the most. So there are discussions ongoing at the moment. And uh, the major uh, ground assault will be undertaken by the Iraqi security forces, obviously, as well as uh, Sunni militia, Hashid uh, al-Watani. Um, but the big question uh, really is, will the Shia militias play a role? Because uh, they are forced to be reckoned with and um, as I was saying, the, 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 the city of Mosul is, is very ethnically complex. The Shias um, do have a stake, so to speak, in Mosul, and the Shia militias would like to uh, 
take part in the offense, take part in the offensive. But uh, at the moment, anyway, Baghdad is saying no. So at the moment, the push will be from just south of the city, north. And uh, it's those forces that will enter Mosul. There's concern, I, I believe, that the Shia militias would be engaged in, in ethnic purges against uh, Sunnis in, in the city of, of Mosul and that, might, that their presence there might actually harden the resistance because of fears of, of ethnic uh, cleansing. This is the dilemma. This is the dilemma, yes, because uh, there have been reports about uh, uh, Shia militias uh, committing atrocities against Sunni. Uh, populations in the rest of Iraq in, in the past year or so, because um, the, the Shia militias, uh, are, they, they really are a force to be reckoned with. They've done a lot of groundwork in the past 12 months. Although not maybe uh, equal in numbers to the Iraqi state security forces, they're certainly equal in capabilities. They would be Iranian-leaning, uh, ideologically and spiritually, but their salaries are paid by Baghdad, and there will be um, strong coordination between Shia militias and the Iraqi state security forces commanders. Just yesterday, Shia militias were denied the right to register as a political party. So um, that's, 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 that's what has just happened. But whether they will be allowed to do that after the Mosul operation is a different question. So they're certainly a force to be reckoned with. They are certainly influential and not to be um, looked over by anybody in power in Baghdad. And the Kurds are particularly concerned about a flood of, of refugees from the city, um, that that they pres- I presume would happen more or less as soon as the assault uh, took took place. Are there any preparations by the international community for coping with that? Yes, the international community themselves are actually very concerned about it. Last week, the uh, UN uh, High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, his representative in Iraq, said that uh, uh, they're expecting a massive displacement not seen for many years. And the population of Mosul is something like a million and a half people, so. They're expecting over a million to flee, and um, half of those will go into the Kurdistan region. And um, uh, it, it, there's already some 3.3, 3.5 million uh, Iraqi people who have been forced to flee their homes since IS uh, started taking territory in 2014. So when you add another million or so people on top of that, it's hard to see how, uh, how anybody could prepare for that properly. The Kurds are expecting serious consequences, humanitarian consequences from the offence. And tell me, uh, how uh, is the response in Erbil to the Turkish intervention in Syria, and particularly their attacks on on Kurdish forces in uh, northern uh, Syria? And well, I have to say it's, it's quite complicated because the the, the government in, in Erbil, the the ruling party in Erbil, would have been very friendly with uh, Ankara uh, over the years. And um, I haven't seen much out of them about the recent Turkish incursion into Syria because um, the, the Kurdish forces in Syria would be aligned with the, uh, the, the ruling party in Erbil's rivals here in Iraq. So, you know, and I've seen that the Kurdish forces in Syria have been arresting, they're called the PDK, they've been arresting PDK people in Syria so I, I haven't seen much of a reaction out of Erbil towards Turkish incursion into Syria. Um, and I don't think you'd be likely to see one, to be honest. Thank you very much, Rory. Thanks to Eamon Gilmore, to Rory Giblin, and to sound engineer Robo Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>